Shall we get into the Word this morning? Awesome. Well, the Word that I want to bring this morning is an interesting subject. And it's a subject that I think sometimes we may be nervous to talk about because it really affects every one of us. At probably every level of everything that we're involved in. From our families, to our marriages, to our homes, to our children, to our schools, to our businesses, to our church. Even as large as to our city or our nation. And this morning I want to speak about the power of unity. Everyone looks so excited. <laughs> it's awesome. The power of unity. It's going to be amazing. So hold on to your seatbelt, fasten your seatbelt, get your Bible ready. And I'm going, to, I'm going to share the word for us this morning. And actually when we were in our 21-day fast, we got to day 17. And for those of you who followed along, we were reading through the book of John, one chapter a day for 21 days. There's 21 chapters, so hopefully everyone got to chapter 21. <laughs> it's beautiful if you did get to the end. But when we got to day 17, day 17 actually focuses on a prayer that Jesus prayed. And Jesus prayed for the believers, for the disciples. And the prayer really goes into the extent where Jesus not only prayed for the disciples of the day, but he also prayed for the disciples of today. He also prayed for you and me. And when I read through that John 17 chapter, I actually had to stop there for a little bit. I had to park there. Because it was as if the Lord was speaking to my heart afresh again on this topic of unity. On the importance of understanding the spiritual dynamic, the spiritual key that lies within this idea and this concept of unity. And it's even applicable in the world. It's like, you know, spiritual laws, like a law of gravity. The law of unity actually works outside of the kingdom just as well as it works inside of the kingdom. And so why don't we just start with Jesus' prayer. And I've only taken a couple of verses. And if you are taking notes, you can also have a look at you version. I've included all the scriptures in there. Not everything will be on the screen this morning. But let's start in John chapter 17. If you've got a Bible with red letters, you'll know. This is Jesus speaking because it's got red letters. I want to read verse 11 and 20 to 24. Now I am departing from the world. Now Jesus is speaking to the Father. This is just before he's um, arrested, before he was going to be crucified. Jesus says, now I am departing from the world. And they are staying in this world. Speaking about the disciples, his children. They are staying in this world, but I am coming to you. Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united. Everyone say united. United just as we are. Verse 20. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. So that's you and I. Verse 21. I pray that they will all 
be one. Just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. Verse 22. I have given them the glory you gave me. So they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. How powerful is that? Jesus is praying to the Father and he's about to be crucified. And he's praying for you and me. And he's saying, Father, help them to be just as united as you and I are. What a beautiful prayer. And we can see Jesus' heart for his disciples. That he calls us to unity. He calls the church. Who is the church? It's you and I. It's brothers and sisters. It's not denomination one versus denomination two. It's not apostle versus prophet. It's not Hillsong worship versus Bethel worship. It is not this pastor versus that pastor. It is kingdom. It is brother and sister. When you and I serve Jesus, that means we're family. Now some of us are like, rarig here. Daar is nie my damse gaanse nie. Nee, how many times we speak, that's not my tribe. Jesus is concerned about unity in his body. Jesus actually speaks of the church as his body, as his bride, as his temple. One body, many different members, many different functions. Okay? And so what is biblical unity? I love this description. It's from a pastor in the United States, and he phrased it so well for me. He said this, biblical unity is oneness of purpose. Oneness of purpose. In other words, it is actually agreeing on the same direction and the same purpose, and then moving towards it together. It is not uniformity. Sometimes when we talk about unity, we think, oh, well, we have to agree on every opinion. Or we think about unity and we think, oh, we, we will never disagree or we will never maybe fight among one another. Or we will never disappoint one another. We always have to be in this perfect la, 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 la all the time. Which we know that is not what Jesus is saying. He's speaking about oneness of purpose. Oneness of purpose. Unity in Christ means believers who are born again in the same spiritual family. We're baptized into the same Holy Spirit. We are united through the same Bible, the same word, the same truth of God's word. We have the same commission, the same mission. Brotherly affection and service and reconciliation with one another. And there's actually two examples. There's a lot of examples of biblical unity. 
But there were two specific ones that I really wanted to highlight this morning. That I believe is actually very powerful. But before we get to that, there's another scripture that I want to read. That I want to share with you and it's in Ephesians. And the Apostle Paul, when you go and read through the Bible, the letters that he wrote to a lot of the churches, you will always hear the stone of unity coming through as well. Paul understood Jesus' call to unity. He understood that in the church, we are maybe going to struggle with this concept. And that's why he constantly admonished and encouraged people, believers, to stay in this place of unity. Listen to what he says in Ephesians 4, verse 1 to 6. Paul says, Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, who is over all and in all and living through all. That's powerful, hey? So he says, make every effort. This is the part where we normally go, I need five confirmations. Make every effort to stay in unity. I love actually the Passion Translation that says this scripture, and I thought this was very funny. In the Passion Translation, in verse 2, it says, Tender humility and quiet patience. People struggling with patience, he saw, in the room. Don't make me be the only one. Tender humility and quiet patience. Always demonstrate gentleness and generous love towards one another especially those who may try your patience. Shoo, yeah. Make every effort, especially to those who may try your patience. Who does not have someone trying their patience on a daily basis? And I love how it even says that Always demonstrate gentleness and generous love. Generous love, when you go and look in the Aramaic, actually means stretching. <laughs> Who feels like sometimes they are being stretched in terms of love, in terms of unity with the brothers and the sisters. Sometimes not even in the church, just even in your own home. <laughs> it's a stretching. I can see people laughing, but they don't want to laugh or smile too out loud because... We're all sitting together in the room. Yeah, Jesus is making a call of unity to all believers, to share in the same oneness of purpose that he shared with the Father. Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit are one. And if you think about the Trinity, and that's a doctrine that is sometimes very difficult for, for some people to grasp and understand, but Jesus is one plus one plus one, 
equals one. Does that make sense this morning? One plus one plus one equals one. And the same way that there is that incredible perfect unity between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, Jesus is actually making this call to us as believers to get into that same place of unity. To get into that same place of agreeing on whom we serve and about the purpose that we've got. Amen. Power examples of unity in the Old Testament. I don't know when last you've read this story. I haven't read it in a long time. But in Genesis 11, there's a story just after the flood, after Noah's descendants, where the Lord said he's going to scatter them all over the earth. Johanna spoke about Noah last week. He's going to scatter them all over the earth. They decided, no, 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 no. We do not want to be scattered. We are speaking the same language. We are, is it love? We are speaking the same language. We use the same words. Let us build a tower for ourselves that will reach into the heavens to make our name famous. Because we want to stay where we are and we want to stay together. And the Bible says the following in Genesis 11 verse 6. Look, he said, this is God. The people are united and they all speak the same language. After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. I thought, what a powerful example of unity. Even though they were in complete rebellion to the Lord, what did this do? The fact that they were speaking the same language, they were all in absolute agreement on the mission and what they were going to do, it actually attracted God's attention so much that he came down to look at the tower. He came down to look at what they were busy with, only to destroy it because they were coming in rebellion against him and against an instruction that he had to scatter them all over the earth. But isn't it powerful how incredible the power of unity is? The Lord even said, after this, in other words, after they decided to be in complete agreement, nothing would be impossible for them. Nothing. I think that's incredibly powerful. In the early church, the Bible says in Acts 1.14, that when the early church was birthed, they were in absolute unity in prayer. Before the Holy Spirit was poured out, before the power of God descended upon the church to give birth to the church, a movement that we are still part of today, the Bible says in Acts 1.14 that they were united in prayer. They were in absolute agreement and united about what they were going to do. And they were waiting and praying. And the Bible says, then actually, they were in one place, in one accord, one mind, with one purpose, and the Holy Spirit was powerfully poured out on them. A mighty roar from heaven descended upon the upper room. So in both of those examples, we see one allocated towards rebellion, the other one allocated absolutely beautiful spirit of worship, partnering with the Holy Spirit. But we see that the power of unity attracts God's attention. It gets him involved into the situation that we are busy with. 
That is a key to unity. It is agreement and it is absolute powerful because nothing will be impossible for them. So number one, it attracts God's attention because they were united. They spoke the same language. They were focused on the same mission. They were 100% bought in to the plan and to the mission. 100% bought into that. The power of agreement, Matthew 18, 19, says that when two of you agree on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. The power of agreement. Anything that you ask, it will be done for you. There's also another scripture in Amos 3 verse 3 that says, When two walk together, how can they walk together unless they agree? There's another scripture that also says two is better than one. Jesus sent the disciples out two by two. There's also another scripture that says one can put a a thousand to flight, two can do 10,000. Do you see how scripture actually speaks about unity? How it speaks about agreement and the power that lies within agreement. The power that lies with not trying to do these things alone. God has never called us to operate in the kingdom by ourselves. His heart has always been for family. His heart has always been to be together. I almost entitled the sermon, Better Together. Stronger Together. Think about a marriage. What happens in a marriage when husband and wife are not in agreement? When we're not in agreement, when we are divided. Jesus said, a divided house shall not stand. And so, what can happen in our church? What can happen in our families? What can happen in our businesses? When we are willing to let go of some of the petty stuff that we hang on to, that doesn't have anything to do with the purpose or the direction we are supposed to go. But that is keeping us in a place of division. What if the church really focuses on unity? What if in our homes we really focus on unity? In our marriages, in our family relationships? What if in our businesses we can focus on unity? What will happen in one week when we are united? I actually thought about this and I thought, well, if the church can really be united, because the church of Jesus Christ is not united. I don't think anyone disagrees with me. We're united in that, the fact that we're not united. And it's sad because if we are united, Jesus said, nothing will be impossible for us. If we are really united, we could eradicate poverty. If we really are united, the church of Jesus Christ globally, we could really preach the gospel to every creature. Jesus maybe will come back sooner. I don't know. Just think about what is possible when we really strive and make every effort for unity. And what is the state of the church today, the body of Christ? 
Are we in unity or are we divided? Are we agreeing on our purpose and our mission or are we fighting and quarreling about minor issues that is not the major issues? Because division is the biggest plan of the enemy for the church of Jesus Christ. This is the reality. If the enemy can sow a seed of division or he can sow a seed of discord among believers, and he starts in families, but I want to focus on the church this morning. Brothers and sisters in the church, the family of God. If he can sow a seed of discord or division, it spreads like a wildfire and it opens up the door. Because remember, we always speak about the spiritual realm. It opens up a door for him to come in and steal and kill and destroy. Because he knows if I can destroy their unity, I take their power. He doesn't take it, we give it. Amen. Jesus said in Matthew 12, every city or house divided against itself will not stand. Without unity, we as the church are powerless. We are powerless. And there are loads of hindrances to unity, but I want to highlight three that I really, as I prayed and I said to the Lord, Lord, show us what do we need to make sure that we do not focus on or that we get rid of if we want to see unity in our church. Because we can pray for the global church, and we do, but what is our concern? Our concern is our family here, our church. And I know Johannes feels very strong about this. When we even go on outreaches... If you are not in unity with us, you cannot be on the team. Why? Because when we go out and we don't do kumbaya and we just sing, we go out and we go and we engage in spiritual warfare. We pray for the sick, cast out demons, do all those things, preach the gospel. But you cannot go in there with division in your team and think that you are going to have success in the spiritual realm. We have seen this on so many outreaches. If there is disunity in the team and we don't sort it out, we don't forgive, we don't release, we don't let go, the enemy comes into the camp and he causes destruction. And our mission is useless. And so that is why we are going to be very strong on unity, even in our church. The Bible, and we'll talk about that more next week, but the Bible is actually very stern on unity, maintaining the unity in the church. If there is someone in the church that sows division, there will be conversations. Because Paul even said to all of the church leaders, he said, do not allow divisions among yourselves. Do not allow people, because there are some people that will want to come in and sow divisions among God's people that are not interested in maintaining unity, that are not interested in actually a spirit of forgiveness. So we're not talking about when we have a challenge we sort it out, you know, among one another. There are ways to handle conflict. We're not talking about that. We're talking about when someone comes in deliberately to sow division. And they're not interested in coming back into unity. The Bible actually gives church leaders permission to bring discipline in the church. And so Johannes and I are going to be very strict on that in our church. One of our biggest prayers is, Lord, we want the unity 
in our church to be strong because we want to be an effective church. We don't want to play church. We want to be a church that actually fulfills the mission and the mandate that God gave us to do. We want to see unity restored in marriages. We want to see unity restored between brothers and sisters. And sometimes that'll take work. Sometimes it'll take tears. Sometimes it'll take pride to let go of. But that is Jesus' heart, and that's the heart that we want to see in our church. Three hindrances that we believe can really block unity in a, really in any situation. But particularly for us in church is number one, unforgiveness and bitterness. Okay, we know this, we speak about this often. But unforgiveness and bitterness is probably the biggest root causes of illness, disease, physical manifestations in people's bodies, spiritual hindrance between us and the Lord. Okay, that is something that we have to get rid of in our hearts. Something that we have to deal with as soon as we recognize that maybe we've got a challenge in this area. It could even start in our own natural families and spill into the church's effectiveness. Hebrews 12 says, be careful so that there would be no root of bitterness springing up in your heart. Otherwise, it will spread like a cancer through the body. And it's true for our physical body, but also in the church body. We've seen this so many times in church. It can start with a very little offense. The pastor didn't greet me on Sunday morning. Okay? Now it seems silly to us, but it might be a big deal for the person experiencing that and feeling that. And if we don't deal with that little offense, it starts to grow. It starts to grow. And before we know it, we talk to Sonny, and Sonny says, but... Johannes also didn't greet me on Sunday. Now we've got two people with the same offense talking. Now it becomes like magnets. Have you seen offended people attract one another? <laughs> that is a problem. Because my offense and your offense combined now makes one big strong offense. Now we start to justify our offense. We start to agree on it. We come into unity about our offense, and before long, we attract other offended hearts to our little offended tea party, and now it becomes a problem. This is a frot call, what later begin frot in a, bars, in, a, in a batch of fresh apples. Nee? So frot apple wat later los sit. And anything else touching it will become frot if we don't deal with it. Verskoon my Afrikaans, maar dit is nou die beste manier wat ek in elkaar verduidelik. Okay, so it's very important. And next week we'll actually talk through some details. Offense does come. People are going to make mistakes, especially in the church. Can I just say something? Can I give a prophetic word? My prophetic word for this morning is the church is not perfect. Is that news for anyone this morning? Is that a new revelation? The reality is where there are people, we are going to be offended. Where there are people, we are going to disappoint one another. We may fail one another. We may make a mistake. But it is how do we handle that? 
How do we work through the disappointment? How do we work through? How do we understand and apply forgiveness, reconciliation? How do we make the effort, Paul said to us, to make the effort? Are we even willing to make the effort? Because it's important that we learn how to do that. And it starts in our homes, it starts in our families. And then it spills over into church. And the enemy would love to try and wound us early in life. And that's where sometimes for some of us it's easier to take offense at certain things because it's actually what happens is something might happen to us and it's actually pressing on an old wound that maybe is not even this person hurting me right now, but it's pressing on a wound from 20 years ago that was never dealt with, a bruise that is still there. That's why we do liberating the human spirit. We go through things like rejection, abandonment, those kind of things that we have to deal with them so that we can actually get to a place of wholeness where our future relationships can flourish so that we don't walk around wounded because then it will be easy for us to always get hurt whenever something doesn't go our way. Amen. Number two, a hindrance to unity is gossiping, complaining, grumbling. This is huge. Gossiping, complaining, and grumbling. When I broadcast the shortcomings of others with no attempt of helping them to get better or praying for them. Broadcasting the shortcomings of others, it's really similar to when we spoke about the Beatitudes and we spoke about judgment. How Jesus doesn't want us to point fingers at people when we don't understand where they've come from. And a personal example of this is when I had the privilege of working for, and I'm going to share her name because she shares this globally, Joyce Meyer Ministries. The Lord gave her and her husband, Dave, three requirements. If they wanted to see the blessing, the favor, and the anointing of God on their ministry, the Lord said to them, you've got to abide by these three things. And I'll never forget it because it made such an impression to me. And it was actually such a wake-up call to me. Number one is they always had to operate in excellence. Operate in excellence, in other words, not perfection, but they always had to do the best with what they had. They had to have an excellent spirit. The same way they would do things in excellent in the world, God's house had to also have a place of excellence. The ministry, the, the presentation of the word had to be excellent. Doing the best with what we have. Going the extra mile, always. Number two, they always have to walk in integrity. Joyce says that the Lord specifically said to her in the early years of her ministry, if you get a speaking engagement at a small local church with 15 people, and you agree to it. And the next week, you get a speaking engagement for a church of thousands, a huge conference with media, and it would be a huge opportunity for her ministry. But she's already committed to the small church. If they were on the same day, she had to operate with integrity and say, but I've already committed to this engagement. They had to be people of their word. Their yes was their yes, and they know was they know. And the third one that I actually want to get to is they had to keep the strife 
out of the ministry at all costs. What does that mean? She actually wrote it in our job contracts, our employee contracts. It said the following. It said, any undercurrent of grumbling, complaining, or gossiping will be seen as sowing seeds of strife and disunity. And if you were found guilty of that, you will be fired. That's how serious they were about it. If you were found guilty of sowing any seeds of gossip, discord, grumbling and complaining, and the reason they did that, we, because the anointing of God was more important for them to have on the ministry than an undercurrent of gossiping and complaining. And so they explained it to us is that when we have problems and we have challenges, have the question, have the meeting, have the conversation with the people in question, but never talk, and this was something I learned and, and it changed my life, never talk to someone about the problem who doesn't have the authority to fix it. That was huge for me. So in other words, I don't, I don't go to the receptionist. That's how we start. Eh? We just want to make conversation. No, we're just exchanging prayer requests. There's a place of, of healthy soundboarding and there's a place of gossiping. Never talk to anyone about the problem who doesn't have the authority to fix it. That was a great way for me to remember and put an own check in my heart. Actually, I'm trading on dangerous grounds. I'm heading into the gossip territory. Because why is that so important? Because when that division comes in, it's a hard thing to get out of our hearts and it's a hard thing to sort out when there's already division because Jesus said a divided house will fall. When the Israelites came against Moses, it, the Bible says that God's anger came upon the Israelites because they spoke against God's authority. God put Moses in charge. And there's a powerful lesson that I also learned in my church journey and working for ministries and even in, in my own life. Whenever I speak against the authority, I'm not saying when we have a problem with authority, we must be able to have an open door policy and come and address things directly. Absolutely. Conflict, we speak about all those things. But when I speak about the authority behind their back, God is actually not pleased. I learned this in my own church journey of speaking against leaders that actually irritated me. I didn't agree with their decisions. I actually thought, what are they doing? And God actually came and spoke to me once and shared with me that story of Miriam, Moses' sister who spoke against him. Actually, Miriam and Aaron came against Moses. Again, the power of agreement with our offense. And the Lord actually called them out of the camp and said, come and stand outside of the tent. And he blessed her with leprosy. <laughs> I'm using blesses, tongue in cheek. Okay, so God is very serious about this. This is something that kills the unity in a team. It kills the unity in families. It kills the unity within the church. And so we want to be a church, and we'll talk about that next week. How do we handle conflict? How do we handle when we do have a disagreement? 
How do we work through it? What is a healthy way to deal with conflict? Because I think it's something that all of us will encounter probably on a daily basis. But we just need to know what are the biblical ways that we can actually work through that to get to a place of reconciliation. Because here's the reality. We are not all going to agree on everything all the time. That's okay. Our opinions doesn't have to divide us. But some of us are so stuck on our opinions that we have to be right all the time. I've really struggled with this in my own life. I have lots of opinions. And Jesus is like, well, what make your opinion when we're speaking about unity? When my opinion is outside of the gospel and outside of the truth of God's word, it's merely my opinion. We do not have to divide over our opinions. What is currently happening in the world? The moment I say the word vaccine, shh. This is a split that net for you gebeur. I respect your opinion even if I don't agree with you. And I ask you to respect my opinion even if you don't agree with me. That's okay. We still serve the same Jesus. I sing a different song than you sing. My pastor preaches different than your pastor. My denomination looks different than your denomination. It doesn't matter. Can we just agree to agree on the majors and not to disagree on the minors? And even when we disagree on the minors, in other words, things that doesn't have to do anything with our salvation, we cannot disagree about Jesus dying for us. But we can disagree about how we interpret the wegrapen. Okay? It's not going to do anything for my salvation. But if the cost is our unity, then I need to think, is it really worth it? If it's the cost of our unity. Jesus said we are a body. And what happens when the physical body attacks itself? Just think of your own body. When the body starts to attack itself, autoimmune diseases and things like that start to be generated in the body. And that's what I believe is happening in a lot of the church around the world. The body is attacking each other. We're listening to people on YouTube. And we start to judge. And we start to call out other pastors' mistakes. I'm not talking about, again, I'm caution. When there is sin in the body, there are appropriate ways to deal with it. But you sitting on YouTube on the other side of the world probably have nothing to do with that conversation. You're not a part of it. Just pray for them. Just pray for them. If a part of the body is hurting, pray for them. And make sure that the part where we are involved in is healthy. And make sure that the part where we are involved in, where we have responsibility, that we actually contribute to the effort towards unity. Am I cultivating a spirit of unity where I am at? Or am I contributing to the spirit of division? Because we can so easily fall into that second camp. Proverbs 6 verse 19. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven things he detests. Haughty eyes. A lying tongue. Hands that kill the innocent. A heart that plots evil. Feet that race to do wrong. A false witness who pours out lies. And a person who sows discord in a family. 
So that kind of puts the fear of the Lord in our hearts in terms of how serious the Lord is about unity. It breaks his heart when we're in division. It breaks his heart when we cannot get along. It breaks his heart when we maliciously hurt one another. The third thing is self-focus, and I'm not going to go too deep into that. But sometimes we can have such an entitlement attitude where everything is about me, myself, and I. Everything is about us. We even sometimes come to church with, how can the church bless me today? And we talk about this with our team a lot. Actually, our heart is to come to church to be a blessing, not to be blessed. And as we said earlier, as I give and as I am a blessing, I am actually being blessed. So you do get both. Jesus' heart for his body is to be one. Why? So that the world would believe that the Father sent Jesus and that his glory would be revealed. He said in John 13, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Unity is not uniformity. It's not sameness of person. We all have different gifts. We have different abilities. We play a different role in the body. But he calls us to agree on our mission together. And I'm going to end with this scripture before I'm going to ask the team to hand out communion as we receive communion this morning. Psalm 133, this is a scripture everyone knows about unity. Verse 1 to 3, it says, you can read on the screen, how good and pleasant is it when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Where there is unity, the Lord will bless. Where there is unity, the Lord's anointing will flow. Sometimes even before Johannes and I bring the word, sometimes when we're in a disagreement, it's very important that we sort ourselves out before we bring the word. If we want the anointing of the Lord to be on top of it. Because if the anointing of the Lord is not in what we do, then we might as well just go home. Amen. All right, and we're going to serve communion this morning. And I'm going to ask Stefan and Marizan to just hand out communion for us this morning. And I want us, we're going to take a couple of minutes this morning. And I want everyone to really kind of stay seated if you can and just, just focus on this last few minutes together. This morning, we're going to receive communion together as a church family. And I want to share with you two scriptures that I believe is really important for us. As we really focus our hearts on communion and the sacredness of communion. on can you still hear me can you still hear me okay. I just sound soft 
Communion is actually an act of unity. When we come together as brothers and sisters. Okay. And I want to read to you the following scripture. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 23 to 26. Okay. Just hold on with the music for a second. I just want to read the scriptures and then I'll cue you for the music. Thanks, team. You're doing a great job. All right. So Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church and he's explaining communion. And he says to them, for I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread. And he gave thanks to God for it. And he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. And in the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. And so I want you to recognize those two things. Number one, the body of the Lord that was broken for us. Jesus' body broken for us so that you and I do not have to take that punishment of death that he endured on the cross for you and me. But also scholars also refer to this particular passage that speaks about the Lord's body. We are also his body. And then it says the agreement of the new covenant. The cup ushered in the blood of Jesus that was spilled for us, ushered in a new covenant for you and me. But there was an agreement on the new covenant. So do you see how unity even comes through in communion? And the team can start playing the music for me now. I'm just going to read these scriptures from here. But just before Paul explained how to receive communion, he spoke to the Corinthian church and he said to them, but I've got this against you. He told them, before you receive communion, I want you to examine your own hearts before the Lord. Because the Corinthian church was actually in a huge place of division. The preceding scriptures in verse 17 and 18 said that, Paul said, in the following instructions, I cannot praise you. For it sounds more harm than good is done when you meet together. First, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church. And to some extent, I believe it. When you meet together, you are not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. And as a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. And so the context of this was that the Corinthian church had a lot of division. They had a lot of problems. And they were coming together in the, in the old days. They would come together and they would host a feast love meal, which I actually think is a beautiful thing for us to do one Sunday when we do communion, is to have a feast meal. And then we come around the Lord's Supper together because there is a unity within that. 
That is Jesus' heart for us, is to come into unity when we remember communion, when we remember His sacrifice. But the Corinthian church were not doing that. They were so divided. They had a lot of poorer people, even slaves, within their midst. And so what would happen is the wealthier people would gather at their homes and they would eat all these luxurious foods and drink all these drinks to get drunk before the poorer people would come. And the poorer people, when they would arrive, they would have nothing to eat. And they would be full of shame. And they would be embarrassed. And then they would throw on the Lord's Supper on top of that to call it the Lord's Supper. And Paul said to them, you are making a mockery of probably one of the most sacred occasions, one of the most sacred things, one of what is supposed to be one of the most united things that the body of Christ can do together. And the Lord cannot bless that. You cannot receive communion with that type of heart. And so then he said in the verses after that, that examine yourselves. It's not a place where we need to go and dig into. We don't want to be sin conscious. Okay? We want to be Jesus conscious. But it is a place of bringing our own hearts before the Lord to say, Lord, come and examine my heart. Is there any root of unforgiveness in my heart? Is there any inclination of bitterness within me? Because if so, then I want to repent and bring it before you this morning. And I want to ask you to help me to release, to let it go. Do not receive your communion yet, by the way. I want you to take the time this morning. We're going to take time to spend time in the presence of the Lord. The love feast was supposed to be a meal of fellowship where they share the sacraments together. And Jesus' heart is for communion to be a feast that we receive together. We feast off of His body together, remembering His sacrifice on the cross. We feast on the wine together, agreeing on the covenant, the new covenant that is now ours. That we can enter into that promise that lies ahead for us when Jesus is coming back. And together we proclaim His death until He comes again. And so what I want you to do this morning... And I want the team to just maybe hit the, hit the lights because I really want us to focus. Communion is a sacred occasion marked by love for one another. And I want you to take a moment, just each one by himself, and just speak to the Lord. And ask the Lord to show you, is there anything in your heart that maybe you just need to let go this morning? And then we are going to let it go. And when we let go and when we forgive, it doesn't mean we justify what someone did to us. It means we actually let go of the hurt, the poison that will eventually kill us when we hold on to it. And we actually open up a doorway for the Lord to come in and be our vindicator. We open up the door for the Lord to come and do what only He can do. So why don't you just take a moment for that and when you're done, you can receive communion in your own time, and I will close for us with a corporate prayer at the end. Lord, we thank you for this time this morning just in your presence. And Jesus, we want to come before you today again, and Lord, we want to thank you 
with humble hearts again, Lord, as we remember your sacrifice for us. Your body that was broken for us on the cross so that we can be made whole. As you took our sins upon yourself. And we thank you for your blood that was spilled. For the forgiveness of our sins. So that we can be washed clean. So that we can be reconciled to you. So that we can receive the new covenant, Lord. That will give us eternal life. And that will give us purpose every day. And that we can be called children of the Most High God. And Lord, as we remember what you did for us on the cross today, Lord, I pray that it will strengthen us inside of our hearts. It will strengthen our faith. And Lord, our prayer is that it will strengthen our unity. That it would strengthen our unity, first of all, with you, with the Father, with Holy Spirit. But secondly, that it will strengthen our unity with one another. Because, Lord, you did not call us to do life alone. You did not call us to do life on the outskirts, but you called us to do life together. You called us to be your body, to be your bride, to be your temple here on earth. And Lord, you are coming back for us as one bride. And so I pray for every person in this room this morning, for every one of us who felt and recognized that there's something in our hearts that we maybe need to let go of. Someone we maybe need to forgive. Maybe we've forgiven, but we haven't let go of the resentment. And Father, I pray that we would let go completely this morning and that we will trust you, that you will be the vindicator. You will be the one to help bring restoration, to help bring reconciliation and to help us process through the pain or the aftermath of what we've gone through. That through your body, there is healing for us, also emotional healing, physical healing, spiritual healing. And so we pray, Lord, that you would continue to guide us as a church into a place of unity. Teach us how to agree on the important things, Lord, and, and teach us to have the right conversations at the right time and in the right ways to deal with things when things do come into a place of disagreement. But Lord, that you would lift up our gaze and you would lift up our eyes to focus on our one mission to focus on the ministry of reconciliation, to focus on what we do agree on when it comes to you and when it comes to your kingdom. And that you would help us to let go of some of the things that really doesn't matter, Lord, in light of you and in light of eternity. And Father, we pray that you would bless this small church community, Lord, and that you would continue to add to our number, that you would continue to to grow us and to shape us into the church that you've called us to be. Would you help us, Lord? Would you guide us through your precious Holy Spirit? We commit this church to you, Lord. I commit every family and every person in this room to you and everyone who is part that is not here today, everyone watching on YouTube today. 
Lord, would you cover them? Would you protect them? Would you bless them? And Lord, we are so excited for what you are going to do, for what you are busy with at the moment. And we want to play a part in it, Lord. We want to be involved. We bless your name. We honor you. We love you so much, Jesus. There is no life on earth without you. And everyone said, Amen.